This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Majority Report, The Jimmy Dore Show, The Media Matters Minute, Counterspin, The David Pakman Show, and The Rachel Maddow Show. And because we are discussing how badly the Republicans messed up their election chances, this episode will contain some profanity. The Republicans lost so bad in this election that even their most stalwart guys are saying, hey, you know what? There's some chance we're fucked. (laughs) This is great. So first, let's start with Bill O'Reilly. It's a changing country. The demographics are changing. It's not a traditional America anymore. 20 years ago, President Obama would have been roundly defeated Mm -hmm. by an establishment candidate like Mitt Romney. The white establishment is now the minority. Okay, we, the, we would have won 20 years ago. I don't know what these guys are doing now. They've got all these African Americans and Latinos running around. <laughs> Did the classic O'Reilly snort in the middle, which I love. We'll do it live! Okay, apparently you won't. So he says, look, the numbers are against us. <laughs> I'm hurt, dog! Dick Morris goes even further. Single women, uh, minorities, and voters under 30 uh, is so large at this point right. that unless the Republican Party fundamentally changes its appeal to those voters, it can never win an election. It can never win an election. I'm hurt, dog. Don't ask me if I'm all right. <laughs> but this is the best one. Rush Limbaugh, after every single election, comes out and says, you see, I told you we should have gone further right wing. I told you we should have gone further right wing. Oh, the moderates, the moderates. Go further right. Well, he now thinks that perhaps, in fact, there are not enough of them on the right to win elections. Watch. I went to bed last night thinking we're outnumbered. I went to bed last night thinking all this discussion we'd had about this election being the election that will tell us whether or not we've lost the country. I went to bed last night thinking we've lost the country. I don't know how else you look at this. We have lost the country. That is Rush Limbaugh. How is that for a white flag of surrender? But you know what? You are absolutely right. Whether it was the Senate seats, whether it was President Obama, whether it was all the ballot initiatives, whether it's on gay marriage, it's on pot, it's on immigration, you have lost the country. That is the truest thing that Rush Limbaugh has ever said. And get a load of this. Right before we went to air, our political correspondent Michael Schur came to me and said he heard on the radio Sean Hannity saying he has changed his mind about immigration. Oh, have you? Have you, Sean Hannity? He now thinks that perhaps they should do a path to citizenship. How is that for a full and unconditional surrender? Oh, that feels good. Doesn't mean they're not going to come back and fight for the tax cuts because this is all about the money. It doesn't mean they're not going to fight for corporations. Of course they are. It's, they're going to fight against climate change. They're going to fight on all those things. But apparently they have realized we can't win this way. Whether it's alienating Latinos, the young, women, social issues, the country is not on our side. You're damn straight it ain't. Before 
Continuing on with our theme about the realization on the right of what has happened in this country. Last night, before the results came in, even though it was clear what was going to happen, and I'm quite convinced that everybody at Fox was drunk, here is Bill O'Reilly sitting back and telling everybody what's what, you know, I've been on air for 15 years. I'm making far more money than I ever should. Let me just tell you what's going on. This is hypothetical. Uh, we don't know who's, who's even winning right now, never mind who won. Uh, but how do you think it got this tight? Because it's a changing country. The demographics are changing. It's not a traditional America anymore. And there are 50%. A traditional America. What is... What, let's examine that idea for a moment. What is a traditional America? Well... For Bill O'Reilly, it's the America that he grew up in. Lily White on Long Island. You know, working class white guys with my mom in the kitchen. Although my dad wasn't necessarily working class. and I, He went to, I think, Harvard, uh, I believe. But um, that's what traditional America is. You know, where women are the chattel of their husbands. But Where how? black people don't have the opportunity uh, to eat in a restaurant if it's a white restaurant but, or, or but, e economically participate. But, I mean, how far back do we go for traditional America? Do we, is traditional America with slave owners? Is well, that's traditional. In fact, that was a, you know, quite a long tradition in this country. Also, um, child labor. That was a fairly big tradition in this country. Continue of the voting public who want stuff. They want things. And who is going to give them things? President Obama. He knows it, and he ran on it. And whereby 20 years ago, President Obama would be roundly defeated mm -hmm. by an establishment candidate like Mitt Romney. The, the white establishment is now the minority. And the voters, many of them, feel that the, this economic system is stacked against them, and they want stuff. You're going to see a tremendous Hispanic vote for President Obama, overwhelming black vote for President Obama, and women will probably break President Obama's way. People feel that they are entitled to things, and which candidate between the two is going to give them things. Bill, will you stick around for a couple of minutes? After so here's the here's the here's the real here's the reality. The white establishment wants things too. They're not just involved in controlling government because hey, we care about everybody else. No, everybody wants something from government. That's why we create governments. We feel that coming together as a society the sum of the total will be greater than its parts. The white establishment wanted stuff only for the white establishment. And now that they have to share, within the words of Bill O'Reilly, with the minorities and the women, 
the white establishment is pissed about it and thinks everything's been up. up uh, there's been all this massive upheaval. Well, there has been. Now everybody gets a share of the pie. You don't get to keep the pie for yourself anymore, Bill O'Reilly. Your female producers are no longer there just so that you have something to really think about in the shower. They actually have their own lives and their own careers. They function not to fulfill some small aspect of your life, but in fact to fulfill their own. That is what you're lamenting. So yes, you're right. African Americans, Latinos, women, they want something from government. And that means that the white establishment is no longer allowed to take all of it from government. Turning tables Turning tables Next time I'll be braver I'll be my own savior When the thunder calls for me So here's what Bill O'Reilly said, why uh, that Mitt Romney won. Here's Bill O'Reilly's explanation. If Mitt Romney had a guy as smart as Obama's chief strategist, David Axelrod, the governor would be celebrating, I should say, tonight. So, so he's saying it was because it wasn't because of his policies. It wasn't because Mitt Romney was a horrible candidate who didn't have a center or a core and people sniffed it out. It wasn't any of that. It was just because David Axelrod is so smart. So here, so here he is on election night, and here's here's how he figured out what is what is wrong, uh, why the election turned the way it did. It's a changing country. The demographics are changing. It's not a traditional America anymore. And there are 50% of the voting public who want stuff. They want things. And who is going to give them things? President Obama. He knows it, and he ran on it. And yeah, they want stuff like affordable health care, equal rights for gays, equal pay for women, you know, stuff like uh, the right for women to make their own reproductive health choices, stuff like a chance to earn a living at a decent job that won't be outsourced to a slave in China, you know, stuff like uh, stuff like freedom from religion or stuff like a federal emergency management agency that actually can manage federal emergencies and manage natural disasters. That would, would that be the stuff they want, Bill? He has a little bit more to say. Hold on. Whereby 20 years ago, President Obama would have been roundly defeated mm -hmm. by an establishment candidate like Mitt Romney. Because he's black. That's exactly what he said. Listen no, to this, Steve. Hang on. There's, listen, you're, you're very... The white establishment is now the minority. That's exactly what he meant, Steve. You were making a joke, but that is exactly that what is, he meant. That is what well, he that's meant. That's the yeah. Pat Buchanan story, too. That's, you know, his book. Well, didn't Pappy Ken come out with a book mm -hmm. a few years yes. ago saying, hey, yeah, white people are going? Yeah, off of MSNBC. Say, say it again, Frank. I said Pat Buchanan's last book was so racist, even by his standards, that they finally 
uh, kicked him off of MSNBC after 20 years of him spouting race, race, this stuff. Yeah. You know, you gotta, I have to hand it to O'Reilly. I'm, Chris Christie wants stuffing. <laughs> so, in that respect, he's a big, he's a big man with healthy appetite. He's a, he's a, a plus-size governor. <laughs> here's what Kyle Rove said. You want to know? Here's why Mitt Romney lost. You ready? The president has a real. He, he succeeded by by suppressing the vote. By, <laughs> oh my God! The president succeeded by suppressing the vote. And how did he do that? Making by saying to people, you may not like who I am, and I know you can't bring yourself to vote for me, but I'm going to paint this other guy as simply a rich guy who only cares about himself. Fifty-three percent in the exit polls said that on election day that Mitt Romney's policies would only help the rich, and they voted for Obama by a nine-to-one margin. Of the 21 percent of the electorate who said the most important characteristic in a president was that he cares about people for me, like me, they voted for for President Obama by almost a nine-to-one margin. Those they. They, they effectively uh, uh, denigrated Mitt Romney's character, business acumen, business experience. Well, what do you and do? But, but you, that, that couldn't actually be the result of people looking at it rejective rea reality. How dare Obama <laughs> accurately paint his opponent when he could do things that Karl Rove would do, like claim his opponent had a black child out of wedlock. <laughs> I think he did a hell of a job suppressing those that those nine to one voters. Yes, the nine to one voter. This is a, that was pretty. He's like, well, the people who thought that Mitt Romney didn't connect with them voted for Barack Obama. Yeah, that's what's supposed to happen. <laughs> that's exactly how it works, Carl. Okay, so here's what Haley Barber had to say this morning. Ready? They decided they're going to have this negative personal campaign to try to convince people that Romney was a bad person. Not get, how'd that work out? Yeah, <laughs> and I'm going to get those Duke boys. <laughs> so Haley Barber. What about Haley Mills? <laughs> <laughs> Parent trap. It's a, valid, it's, a valid, it's a valid question. I'm glad. What kind of name is that for a man, Haley? Okay, he's got more to say. They, they said he was a vulture capitalist, that he was a, uh, a, a bona fide bureaucrat married to an equestrian. Oh, my God. They call him a bureaucrat married to an equestrian? <laughs> well, they do they have no shame? <laughs> I, I, the only bone to pick I would have with that is that he's not qualified enough to be a bureaucrat. A bureaucrat implies a certain amount of ability. Confidence, yes. Besides, that's what, Nit, that's what Nitwit uh, Gingrich called him. Anyway, I mean, you, you he could quote everybody in the primary. I want to know, is, is Ann Romney um, like a harsh equestrian or more of a lipstick equestrian? <laughs> this is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Melinda Warner. Following President Obama's re-election on Tuesday night, members of the conservative media knew who was to blame, the voters. Here's what Eric Bowling had to say. The free stuff. People voted to continue to get free uh, stuff. O'Reilly said it last night, or I said it this morning, my wife's been saying it for the last three months. Rush Limbaugh agreed, comparing Obama to Santa Claus. Conservatism, in my humble opinion, did not lose last night. It's just very difficult to beat Santa Claus. And finally, here's Sean Hannity. If somebody comes along and is saying, you don't have to work hard, and these other people are cheating you, that's a pretty appealing message. 
That's right. National exit polls show that over 50% of Americans thought President Obama was more in touch with the public than Mitt Romney. But according to the conservative media, the reason they voted to re-elect President Obama was just because they want free stuff. Since the Republicans got their ass kicked, uh, they're trying to figure out what happened. Uh, so they're looking around saying, Jesus and Lord mercy, what, ha- what went wrong here? So we go to Republican operatives. Uh, first, uh, one talked to Huffington Post and they said, I think there was a big bomb that just went off in the party and people need to see where the bodies lie and let the dust settle. So at least that part is very accurate and, uh, and honest. He's saying, we blew up, man. And understand why he's saying that and why a lot of these other Republicans are saying it? Because they thought... We can't lose to Obama. We have terrible unemployment. The economy is not recovered. And he's black. Okay, how do we lose to that guy? We hate him so much. We, uh, the country's got to be with us. They got to hate him just as much. We can't lose to that guy. But they did. And so once they lost to that guy, they're like, oh, Jesus, yeah, there's some chance we suck. So now here comes the blame game. Eric uh, Erickson from uh, Red State first says, well, let's blame Romney. He says, Romney stood for nothing and everything at the same time. Sure, not conservatism, but Romney. And then he blames Romney's advisors. He calls them outside charlatans, many of whom will now go work for Republican super PACs, making six-figure salaries. And then we go to Ben Dominic. He's a conservative author, and he says... Uh, it is Romney and the establishment's fault. A message without music. This was the campaign. Delivered by a candidate with little or no personality. Saddled with enormous advantages in life, which become disadvantages in the world of politics. I love that one because he's saying the problem was that Romney was too rich. A Republican is saying that. <laughs> okay, great. I mean, they are really, really hurt. So then uh, we go to Richard Vigory, who is actually one of the uh, huge part of the conservative movement in the past. You know, how much power he has now is a, a different question. But he blames, uh, in fact, quote, literally, the failed Republican leadership. And uh, who else does he blame? Quote, the Republican Party establishment. All right, looking for more excuses, Henry Barber, uh, Republican out of Mississippi. Uh, of course, his brother is Haley Barber, who was governor there. He says, I don't think anyone on our side understood or comprehended how good their turnout was going to be. The Democrats do voter registration like a factory, like a business, and Republicans tend to leave it to the blue hairs. Again, think about that. Here are the Republicans who brag about being so methodical and efficient and businesslike, etc., and now saying, I don't know, man, we got a bunch of old people registering people. And those Democrats, they're a machine. They run things so well. Perhaps that's an endorsement of how they would do in government as well. And then Eric Erickson has finally figured out perhaps it might be the Latino thing. And he says, quote, frankly, the fastest growing demographic in America isn't going to vote for a party that sounds like the, the party that hates brown people. True enough. But finally, we get to one of the real culprits. Some have figured out, yes, Romney was a bad candidate. Yes, his advisors were weak. Yes, the... Uh, Democrats did something right, the ground game, Latinos, etc. But you know what? There are these folks who told us we were going to win and took a lot of money doing it. And it turns out, they screwed us. Well, the leader of that movement was Karl Rove. His groups combined took in $400 million. To be fair, $390 million. The results? Almost not a damn thing. In fact, you even got the 
King Clown uh, mocking him right now. Donald Trump sent out a tweet among his many drunk tweets of the election night. Congrats to Carl Rove on blowing $400, $400 million this cycle. Every race Crossroads GPS ran ads in. The Republicans lost. What a waste of money. Now, he's an authority on wasting money, having gone through many bankruptcies. So when he's making fun of how poorly you manage your money, you know you're in trouble. And then a Republican operative backs that up with even stronger language. Quote, the billionaire donors I hear are livid. There is some holy hell to pay. Karl Rove has a lot of explaining to do. I don't know how you tell your donors that we spent $390 million and got nothing. I love it. Okay, now, understand that there might be a reason for this. Now, Karl Rove, the more money he raised and the more money he spent, the more money he makes. A lot of these political consultants, they take commissions, they take a percentage. So you win the election, well, okay, great. You don't win the election, who cares? He gets paid either way. Now, remember that this is the Republican Party that brags about Ayn Rand. ha <laughs> ha! You know, each to his own, so bad. You lost your pension, so what? Mitt Romney made more money. Well, I guess you weren't as good as him. Bootstraps, right? Well, if Karl Rove took all your money and you lost the election, haha, too bad. He Ian Randed you. That's awesome irony. So let's give you what a loser Karl Rove was. And the people who gave him money are even bigger losers. They did announce it at the Sunlight Foundation. Out of the $103 million that American Crossroads specifically spent on ads, their return on investment was 1.29%. They calculate that based on how many victories that they had in the different races that they spent money on. 1.29%! Loser! Loser! All right, get a look. And then Crossroads GPS, another road group. Not much better. Over 70 million spent. Return on investment, a ridiculously low 14.4%. Now, I want to give you some context here, because not every group did this poorly. Uh, Planned Parenthood Votes, for example, uh, is, of course, a liberal group, pro choice group, and that's the kind of group that uh, all the conservatives have been saying for my entire life. They're way outside the mainstream. <laughs> Nobody's going to vote for those people. <laughs> the kooky liberals. <laughs> of course not. Uh, well, they spent a lot of money, too. They spent over $5 million. Nothing like the hundreds of millions the Republicans spent. $5 million. Uh, return on investment, 98.58%. In other words, nailed it. The people they supported kept winning. You know what the real answer is? It's because they're on the right side. It's not that the people of Planned Parenthood are geniuses and Karl Rove's an idiot. It's that more Americans are pro-choice. In fact, 77% of Americans believe that abortion should be legal. Conservatives, your real problem is you're on the wrong side. The American people don't agree with you. You can give Karl Rove $390 million, give him $3.9 billion, and it ain't going to change that. The only thing it's going to do is make Karl Rove richer. In fact, Chris Redford, uh, Ohio Democratic Party chairman, says, Carl's getting his cut. He probably made, I'm guessing, 30 to $50 million this cycle by shaking down the oligarchs. Which is terrific, by the way. Uh, I mean, there's nothing that makes me happier than rich conservative guys who wanted to buy this election getting robbed. But the people who robbed you weren't the poor or the middle class. It was your own. It was Rove.
Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. In 2004, Georgia W. Bush won a narrow popular vote victory over Democrat John Kerry with 51% of the total vote and a slight edge in electoral votes. This was better than losing the popular vote, as he had four years earlier. Many corporate media outlets proclaimed the Bush victory a mandate. It's not a term with any precise meaning, which in a way makes it more interesting to see how it's used. Clear mandate will boost Bush's authority reach, read a USA Today headline back then. On NPR, Rene Montaigne said, quote, by any definition, I think you could call this a mandate, close quote. So this week, Barack Obama won re-election. At this point, a 303 to 206 electoral vote advantage and a 50 to 48 edge in the popular vote. What do you call that? For a lot of people in the media, it's definitely not a mandate. CBS's Bob Schieffer said this, quote, In the hard world of American politics, the president did not get a mandate yesterday, close quote. CNN pundit David Gergen agreed with that, saying Obama would have had a mandate if he'd won the first debate. On the NPR website, one headline, For Obama, vindication, but not a mandate. The Washington Post's Dan Balls called it, quote, an uncertain mandate, although Obama will attempt to claim a real one, close quote. It's hard to figure out what the standard is here exactly, but whatever it might be, Bush managed to get one and Obama mostly did not. Another major theme of post-election coverage is shaping up to be that the outcome underscores how terribly divided and fractured the U.S. electorate is, the main evidence for which seems to be that different people voted for different candidates. A nation moving further apart, warned USA Today November 7th, election confirms an entrenched divide. Susan Page explained that Obama won with, quote, a coalition of America's rising electorate, African Americans, Hispanics, and young people from the millennial generation, plus some whites, especially women, close quote, while Romney did better with whites and older voters, which proves that the electorate is, quote, split in two, not only along lines of political party and ideology, but also by race and ethnicity, gender and marital status, region and religion, education and age, close quote. Don't puzzle too hard on how one group can be split in two along nine vectors because others came closer to spelling out what they see as the problem. On Morning Edition, November 8th, NPR's Cokie Roberts hit on the nation-divided theme and explained Obama's task in the face of it. It is a divide where he's lost whites, he's lost Southerners, uh, he's lost the people of a certain income and age, and he's really got to do something fast to deal with that. Quick thought experiment. 
Had Romney won, but without majorities of people of color or low-income people, would we be listening to Cokie Roberts lecture him about how he needed to immediately reach out to those groups? Would USA Today be wringing its hands? Or do divides only matter when you think you might be on the weaker side? One of the saddest phenomena of election coverage was the revelation that corporate journalists really don't understand what fact-checking is, that they don't see it as serving the public by pointing out clearly the gap between candidates' claims and reality, but as just another way of proving their own neutrality by suggesting, no matter what the reality, that both major party contenders are being misleading in equal measure. Factcheck.org's Brooks Jackson even admitted it, saying that even if they do know who is lying more significantly, they wouldn't say because that would look like bias. So we'd love to think we were seeing the back of this phenomenon with Washington Post fact-checker Glenn Kessler's November 4th column headlined, The Best or Worst Pinocchios of This Presidential Race. True to form, it was not a list of the most glaring or harmful falsehoods of the race, but a catalog of various themes, like silliest blooper or worst math skills, with one example each drawn from both major parties. The inadequacy of this approach crescendos with Kessler's conclusion that the most complex subject for spinning was bipartisan effort, and he illustrates, quote, The Obama administration's memo saying it would accept welfare waivers related to worker participation targets prompted bipartisan spinning. The Romney campaign aired an over-the-top ad that accused Obama of gutting the welfare reform law, even though no waivers had been issued. But the Democratic counterspin was also questionable, leaving largely unanswered what the administration hoped to accomplish with the new rules. Close quote. So, Republicans' repeated unequivocal claims that Obama would eliminate work requirements were unfounded, but equally misleading was Democrats' failure to make that clear? It doesn't make much sense, but it doesn't need to, as long as it's even-handed. So Dick Morris had a prediction. Do you remember Dick Morris's prediction? Here we go. Landslide. Rights for Newsweek magazine actually said that there was a possible Obama landslide coming. My goodness. Well, on Friday, I looked at the real poll numbers uh, by an organization that I can't name, but I trust it. Okay. Okay, that we all know that the best poll numbers are kept secret. We all know that. <laughs> I think you can't name the hey, poll organization. Up. Can, he, can he tell us their poll, what the name of that secret organization is so we know not to go there anymore for poll numbers? That would be, that would be nice if he did that for Well, here's his other prediction, another prediction. 
Romney will win this election by five to ten points in wow. the popular vote wow. and will carry more than 300 electoral votes. But Dick, what are you trying to say? We're going to win by a landslide. Uh, the, uh, it will be the biggest surprise in recent American political history. Okay. But only to him. Okay. <laughs> Okay, that's Dick Morris. Now we're going to go here. You know, in fairness to Dick Morris, though, he, you know, he was crunching a lot of those numbers. And so uh, as part of the counting, he had to take his shoes off. <laughs> and that's distracting for him, obviously. You know, the only prediction uh, Dick Morris ever made that came true was that he'd get an orgasm from sucking a hooker's toe. <laughs> Here's Larry Kudlow. Here's our favorite, uh, our favorite financial analyst, Larry Kudlow. I'm now predicting a 330 electoral vote landslide. Yes, that's right. 330 electoral votes. Okay, that's Larry Kudlow, and now you wonder why the stock market crashed with guys like that. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, in, in defense of Larry Kudlow, he did revise that from an earlier prediction that Romney would win uh, 1,100 electoral votes. Yes, <laughs> he did rein it in. Here's Rush Limbaugh uh, right be on Monday. My friends, um, I've been looking at all of the data that you have been looking at. I've been trying to, to separate feelings from thoughts and come up with some sort of a, a, a an educated prognostication. You know, common sense tells me this election isn't going to be close and shouldn't be. All of my so all of his intellectual analysis told him that his audience wanted smoke blown up their ass. <laughs> it really it worked out then. It really makes you miss the uh, the real sage, thoughtful advice of Jimmy the Greek. <laughs> He's got more to say. Rush had more to say. My thinking says Romney big. <laughs> all of my feeling, if you under all of my feeling, all of his feeling is cheesecake. <laughs> is, is where my concern is. But my thoughts, my intellectual analysis of this, factoring everything I see plus the polling data. Not even close. 300 plus electoral votes for Romney. Hey, as long as we're making stuff up, let's make it a landslide. <laughs> <laughs> They're just words. He's, uh, he's using that same math that Romney's budget plan used, I think. <laughs> well, also, I, but I think he was, with, with that uh, prediction, he was directly quoting Frankenstein, wasn't he? <laughs> I just can't, I can't even I, get over his mouth noises. I, I don't even <laughs> He's Half the time, what he's saying, his mouth noise is distracting me. He's reached the point where he is, he is straining to speak. <laughs> Sounds like a... My friends! An obese lizard. Say it again, Frank. In, in the place that Rush goes to every night, uh, Oxycontin land, Romney did win. <laughs> I love how he goes, common sense tells me this election isn't going to be close and shouldn't mm. be. Yeah, I mean, Obama, he's not even really the president. <laughs> Not really. So now, so after? Um, by common sense, he means racism. My that's, racism my tells ra yes, him. Yes, common sense, right. It's a synonym in uh, right-wing talk. So the day after, here's the day after Rush Limbaugh, okay? So he has to find a re... He told his audience, big, it's going to go big, and here's what he says on Wednesday. Ask anybody, you can ask my brother. I had people telling me, asking me, Monday and Tuesday, please tell me we're going to win this big, please. And I didn't. <laughs> I never privately told anybody I thought we were going to win this big. Okay, wait a minute. I got a tape from Monday saying... All of my thinking says Romney big. Not even close. <laughs> okay, but see, do you see what he did there? He said personally, privately, I never told anybody we were going to win big. Mm. He lies to his audience deliberately. He's what right. he invented. This, is, this has been pointed out by uh, that, uh, Lawrence O'Donnell pointed this out last night. <clears throat> 
that he for on Monday he said he's going to win big. And then they didn't. On, on Wednesday, he says, hey, listen, I told you guys that he was going to win big. But listen, so listen very closely how he says it. It's really, it, it, it's important. Ready? Here we go. For the election, my thoughts, when I would think about this, and I told you this on election, there's no way Obama wins this. But my feeling, I felt concerned. You can ask anybody. You can ask my brother. I had people... Let's ask Telling. his brother. Yeah. Can we ask his maid? <laughs> yeah, does yeah. the one I think she does, gets the inside track on that. Does his brother have worse worth mouth noises? <laughs> does he sound like Winston Churchill? We are flat This is pretty I mean uh, what, what Rush is what Rush is basically saying is that um Anyone who I trust, I told the truth. <laughs> yes. You idiots, you idiots who listen to my show, uh, you know, I told something. It's your own fault. He literally just did. I mean, it's like, like, to me, I can't overstate. Like, this should be uh, colossal. This should end his career or his. If you're an audience member and you're going, oh, so Rush tells us bullshit, but he tells all the, the truth to people behind closed doors. So I guess I'll keep listening, and then I'll just whatever he says, the opposite. I'll just believe. Well, he, he how does he keep an audience after something like this? Is my question. Well, because his audience wants want to be treated like children, and he and they he knows that yes. he treats them like children. Yes. He protects them from the truth. Yeah, That's well, what he's doing. I should have smelled a rat when he said he was analyzing the facts and using intellect. <laughs> <laughs> Red flag there. I knew that was. All right, so let's move on. So that was how he ha that that literally happened. Uh, I can't overstate how how crazy that is. Now Laura Ingram was talking with Ann Coulter, and uh, oh wow, oh, boy. <laughs> but, you know I'd love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation because uh, flies have a very short lifespan. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Quite an Algonquin bitch table that. <laughs> I don't. I'd have to bleep that. I think. But uh, <laughs> what uh, table? Just yes. Um, Laura. Here, so here's Laura Ingram talking to Ann Coulter, and Ann Coulter taking it, not taking it well, not taking it well. Uh, for, first of all, she invents another reality. Here, you'll hear it. I'm I'm pretty p pessimistic about about the country. I think. Despite what you said being true, I think Romney... First of all, if, if Ann Coulter is pessimistic about America, that can only be good news for America. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Despite what you said being true, I think Romney ran just on his own force of will a magnificent campaign. I think he was the perfect... Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, he, was, he ran the perfect campaign, especially if you hate winning. <laughs> <laughs> Force of will. <laughs> the she, personality of Mitt Romney couldn't push a piece of paper across the the floor. Uh, it's so, it. So a, a humiliating defeat in a year that should have been a gimme was magnificent. Yes, according to Ann Coulter. According to Ann Coulter. Okay, she has more to say. Hang on. So Laura Ingram can't believe her. You think he ran a magnificent campaign? Yeah. On what basis are you saying that? Yeah. Got his clock cleaned. On. I mean, yeah, how did he run a positive, a, a magnificent campaign, Ann? I can't believe Ann Coulter, who is who is a, a, a truth teller on on issues from the economy <laughs> to social issues to racial demagoguery, is saying that Romney ran a magnificent campaign with Eric Fernstrom and Stu Stevens at the helm. How could you possibly conclude that? 
No, I said he did. I didn't say the campaign was magnificent. <laughs> um, it was better than Ronald Reagan's. There were no... Romney didn't... They had to what? start inventing gaps out of thin air. She said it was better than Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan won both of his elections. <laughs> that would be a bit... She's really missing a major part of this. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. hilarious foxnews.com article that came out which is now blaming the mainstream media which fox news of course claims is liberal which is not the case uh, in, uh, they, they're blaming the mainstream media of tipping the scales in president obama's favor and they cite five reasons and they're really really funny number one what they call the media's bias gaff patrol that it was hammering romney on silly gaffes that didn't matter number two pounding mitt romney with partisan fact checking if it's a fact it's not partisan Okay, that's, that's the reality. Now, they claim that there were inaccurate fact-checkings. No evidence of that if you actually look at the, the real fact-checking organizations. Mitt Romney was just lying, and he was getting called out for it. The media was doing their job, if you believe this list of little, five little things. Number three, they claim that the, the debate moder moderators were biased. Number four, they claim there was a concerted effort to black out anything negative about Benghazi relative to President Obama. And number five, that they buried the bad economy. Of course, job numbers were good, and stocks have been doing well. So I, I, this is a funny list, isn't it, Lewis? It is exactly what I'd expect from, from Fox. It's kind of a blame anybody but us type of thing. Right. Natan, any thoughts on that? Uh, no, I think it's pretty clear that uh, pretty much everyone on that network was wrong in everything they were saying about what the electorate was, what the campaign was about, um, and now they're just trying to justify it. tell you the story about Mitt Romney. And if anybody thinks there's a strategy involved in this, you need to show me where there is an election for the biggest a-hole in the country. And if you could show me that there's a secret election for the biggest a-hole in the country, maybe, maybe Mitt Romney, maybe Trump is spinning off something from The Apprentice. 
where it's going to be like American Idol, but it's going to just be American a-hole. So Mitt Romney is on a call to his donors. Basically, with the classic corporate businessman spin. This is why it didn't work out. It's not because I'm a sucky candidate. It's not because the Republican Party's got some real problems. It's none of those things. According to Mitt Romney, in this conference call on Wednesday afternoon with his National Finance Committee, Mitt Romney said the president had followed the old playbook of wooing specific interest groups, especially the African-American community, the Hispanic community, and young people, with targeted gifts and initiatives. Here's the quote. In each case, these, uh, they were very generous in what they gave to those groups. Let me first off say that what Mitt Romney should have said, or somebody, I hope, on that call said, well, if this is the old playbook, why didn't you prepare for it with all my money that I gave you? <laughs> if this was so tried and true, why didn't you prepare to hit back on this with all the money of mine you spent? Brilliant business guy. Mitt Romney said, with regards to the young people, for instance, forgiveness of college loan interest was a big gift. It wasn't forgiveness, incidentally. It was just the government's only going to take in 3.5% as opposed to 6.8% or whatever it was. Quote, free contraceptives were very big with young college-age women. Oh, yes. <laughs> Remember how much we heard the Republicans say, they don't cost much anyways, the contraceptives. And then finally, Obamacare also made a difference for them because, you know, anybody now 26 years of age and younger was now going to be part of their parents' plan. And that was a big gift to young people. They turned out in large numbers, a larger share than the election in 2008. In other words, what he's saying is that there's a lot of young people out there who love Obamacare. Quote, you can imagine for somebody making 25000 or 30000 or 35000 a year. I wonder if he laughed as he said that. <laughs> wait, wait, what did he say again? Could you imagine? You can imagine for somebody. I'm sure he can. Right. <laughs> oh, I'm sure these millionaires on the phone could imagine that too. They were all just going like, what the frick? You can imagine for somebody making 25000 or 30000 or 35000 a year being told you're now going to get free health care particularly if you don't have it, getting free health care worth, what, 10000 per family? Actually, I, I, I'm paying, I'm even paying 1700 on COBRA. In perpetuity, I mean, this is huge. This is just stunning. This is stunning. He's making a very good argument on the value of the Affordable Care Act, but for him, it's just disgusting. Likewise, with Hispanic voters, free health care was a big plus. But in addition, with regards to Hispanic voters, the amnesty for children of illegals, the so-called Dream Act kids, was a huge plus for that voting group. What an a-hole. This is sort of like despises the idea. I mean, that 47% thing was exactly what was in his heart. 
And so for anybody who wants to call me and tell me how we should have, um, we should have allowed Mitt Romney to win this election for some reason, I, I, I would love to hear the justification. Isn't it weird how they talk about this? How He's not the only one saying this type of stuff, but isn't it weird how they talk about this as if it's some sort of cheat code, like some way that Obama cheated and it doesn't like they can't comprehend well, that here's the point. helping the majority of people will win the majority here's the, here's of the votes? Here's the point. Here's the point. And I've said this many times before. Mitt Romney and his ilk, the 2%, also get huge free stuff from the government. Like the fact that Mitt Romney's $20 million that he earned last year, it's only taxed at 15%. There's no jobs that he created with that money. Why should his, why should his income be taxed at a rate that is substantially lower than someone who makes $50,000 a year? That's a free thing, too. It's just that Mitt Romney wants to give huge free things to just a very small slice of the population. And statistically speaking, though, that just about everybody who voted for him, not everybody, but a massive percentage of his vote, at least 40-some-odd percent, is getting free things from the government, too. It's called Medicare and Social Security. And those transit buses that take old people places because they can't drive. No, this guy just is an a-hole who likes to crap on people who are just not extraordinarily wealthy. I'm so glad you're going to go down to the wormhole. I'm so glad about it. I'm so glad that people are going to remember you for losing the presidency twice, for running for eight years and losing, not even coming close. I'm so glad that for the rest of their lives, your sons are going to think about how much of their inheritance you spent not becoming president and just announcing to the world that you're a huge dick. Bye, Mitt Romney. Forever. The guy who predicted this outcome almost exactly uh, is Nate Silver, of course, who writes the political statistics blog 538 at the New York Times, for accurately predicting, it appears, um, the exact outcome of the race, and I mean down to every single state. We'll see about Florida. Uh, Nate was, of course, pilloried, pilloried on the right and by right-leaning Beltway media types, including Politico.com, for having the audacity to print what his poll averages told him was about to happen. 
But Nate was right. The polls were right. Even without Florida being decided, we now know that President Obama won in pretty much exactly the way the state-by-state -state polls said he was going to win. He won with more than 300 electoral votes. It was not magic. It was just math. Math that was completely invisible to the political right. I believe the minimum result will be 53-47 Romney, over 300 electoral votes, and the Republicans will pick up the Senate. Uh, I base wow. that on just years and years of experience. The wild card in what I've, I've projected is I'm projecting Minnesota to go for Romney. Well, I think Ohioans vote with their wallets. That's why I think Romney's going to win on Tuesday. Carl, I'm actually with you. I got, except I think you're more optimistic. I, I, I got this Romney three points. I think Ohio is going to be a squeaker, maybe an 80, 100, 110,000 vote margin. But I think the Republicans are likely to take it. Who's going to win this election? Charles Krauthammer, your best prediction. Romney, very close, uh, but he'll win the popular by, I think, about half a point. Electoral college, probably a very narrow margin. It will be the biggest surprise in recent American political history. It will rekindle a whole question as to why the media played this race as a nail-biter, uh, where in fact I think Romney's going to win by quite a bit. I am now predicting a 330 electoral vote landslide. Yes, that's right. 330 electoral votes. Yes, that's right. No, that's not. Wrong, 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 wrong. But Republicans and conservatives uh, plainly really believed this stuff. I mean, they were talking each other into it a little bit, but it's not like they were faking it. They were so, 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 so sure they would win. They were so sure that these polls must be wrong and that they must be right. And when the real math of the real world came barreling out of the dark at them last night, they hid from it. They could not believe it. Fox News can now project that President Obama will win the crucial battleground state of Ohio. That's the one we, we've all been waiting for. Uh, and there's a question now about, you know, is it, what does that mean, panel? I mean, does that mean... That, it's, that's the presidency. Do you believe that Ohio has been settled? No, I don't. I got the director of the Ohio campaign for Romney on the other end of the line, refreshing the page every few seconds. I think this is premature. We got to be careful about calling things when we have like 991 votes separating the two candidates and a quarter of the vote yet to count. Well, folks, <laughs> uh, thanks. so maybe not so fast. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, Carl Rove said that we should figure out what the deal is with this decision desk. The decision desk is a, uh, in a different place. Megan, I will escort you down the steps here <laughs> so you can go gentleman. interview them. All right. Um, watch your step. Thank you. Thank you. I don't um, want to fall there you go. in front of all these millions of people. Okay. All Megan right. is going to go to the decision desk and interview them. They're way down the hall. So we'll do a little interrogation and see if they stand by their call. This is the decision desk. Now we're in the heart of the decision desk room. You tell me whether you stand by your call in Ohio, given the doubts Carl Rove just raised. We're actually quite comfortable with the call in Ohio. What do you make of it, Chris? There just aren't enough Republican votes left. Percent certainty. 99.95%. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. Okay, Megan. Uh, I've just called Carl back up from the, uh, and he's coming up here to the desk. He's crunching numbers. He's writing furiously. He's pointing at Bill Hemmer. A lot of things are going on right now. All I'm saying is, is that, look, we've had, a, we've had one instance where, where something was prematurely called. This seems to me to be a very early, uh, or a very early call. With the folks at Obama headquarters in Chicago, they're not listening to Carl. They don't care about what Carl said. 
Ohio really did go to President Obama last night, and he really did win. And he really was born in Hawaii. And he really is legitimately President of the United States, again. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics did not make up a fake unemployment rate last month. And the Congressional Research Service really can find no evidence that cutting taxes on rich people grows the economy. And the polls were not skewed to oversample Democrats. And Nate Silver was not making up fake projections about the election to make conservatives feel bad. Nate Silver was doing math. And climate change is real. And rape really does cause pregnancy sometimes. And evolution is a thing. And Benghazi was an attack on us. It was not a scandal by us. And nobody is taking away anyone's guns. And taxes have not gone up. And the deficit is dropping, actually. And Saddam Hussein did not have weapons of mass destruction. And the moon landing was real. And FEMA is not building concentration camps. And UN election observers are not taking over Texas. And moderate reforms of the regulations on the insurance industry and the financial services industry in this country are not the same thing as communism. Listen. Last night was a good night for liberals and for Democrats for very obvious reasons. But it was also possibly a good night for this country as a whole. Because in this country, we have a two-party system in government. And the idea is supposed to be that the two sides both come up with ways to confront and fix the real problems facing our country. They both propose possible solutions to our real problems. And we debate between those possible solutions. And by the process of debate, we pick the best idea. That competition between good ideas from both sides about real problems in the real country should result in our country having better choices, better options than if only one side is really working on the hard stuff. And if the Republican Party and the conservative movement and the conservative media is stuck in a vacuum-sealed, door-locked spin cycle of telling each other what makes them feel good and denying the factual lived truth of the world, then we are all deprived as a nation of the constructive debate between competing, feasible ideas about real problems. Last night, the Republicans got shellacked, and they had no idea it was coming. And we saw them in real time, in real humiliating time, not believe it even as it was happening to them. And unless they are going to secede, they are going to have to pop the factual bubble they have been so happy living inside if they do not want to get shellacked again. And that will be a painful process for them, I'm sure, but it will be good for the whole country, left, right, and center. You guys, we're counting on you. Wake up. There's real problems in the world. There are real knowable facts in the world. Let's accept those and talk about how we might approach our problems differently. Let's move on from there. If the Republican Party and the conservative movement and conservative media are forced to do that by the humiliation they were dealt last night, we will all be better off as a nation. And in that spirit, congratulations, everybody. Big night. This is Zach from the Chicagoland area. Uh, I'm calling in regards to both your show about GMOs and then your commentary afterwards uh, on this most recent uh, episode. Uh, I, I don't think the pesticide issue was necessarily really made very clear. Um, I remember I listened to the show just a couple of days ago because I'm a little behind, and I don't 
really recall hearing the words pesticides all that much and GMOs a lot. The other thing is you had a clip from the Young Turks that cited a study, a French study regarding GMO corn, which has been widely debunked. Um, the study used mice that have it because of their genetic modifications and breeding have a tendency towards tumors anyway. It had an incredibly small control group, incredibly small test groups, both of which were uh, half of or less than half of what is considered a standard minimum size for a study group. The results, it, it lacked a good control group from, you know, using a group of mice that didn't have any GMO corn or any pesticides. It only had uh, mice that had one or both thus not being able to isolate whether or not these mice would have gotten the tumors anyway, which these breed of mice they use is prone to. And also, the release of that study was also highly suspect because they refused to allow anyone to comment on it who had seen it. Uh, there were a lot of non-disclosure agreements that were reporters were forced to sign about the study, and it has yet it was not peer-reviewed when it was released. They released it long before it was peer-reviewed, which is, once again, not really in keeping with uh, scientific protocol. Uh, I, I think things like that made it seem very much as though the study was taking issue with GMO foods in general. Uh, I myself don't really have much of an issue with GMO foods, although I think that the clips you use regarding California's ballot initiative were absolutely valid because I think everyone has a right to know what's in their food. Um, beyond that, I think uh, the skeptic uh, who called in in the previous episode pretty much hit the nail on the head. Um, I hope that helped clear up uh, why we were getting the vibe we were from it. As always, your show is amazing. I'm, I'm glad you are tackling these issues, even if sometimes... Uh, they may not come across the way you've done them to. All right. Thank you very much. Bye. Hey, Jay. This is Ryan calling from Vermont. Um, I have a really quick, for lack of a better term, criticism. The woman on the Young Turks, who I think is absolutely awesome, and I agree with her almost all the time, but in the GMO episode that you played, that uh, was the last episode I listened to, um, I feel that she fell victim to the false equivalency that we were seeing so much during the election cycle between the Democrats and the Republicans, in that when she said that there are good sides to genetic engineering. Um, I was a longtime GMO activist, and I'm not aware of any. So I just wanted to put that out there. Um, I don't think that that's something we need to feel required to fall victim to, the false equivalency that happens all too often when we're trying to state a point. Um, I think we do it to maybe appease the other side and let them make them more willing to listen. And I do understand that rationalization, but with something as dangerous as genetic engineering, um, I think that that can really cause harm. Um, I just wanted to put that out there. Um, and again, I think that she is awesome. I love the Young Turks. Um, I intend to email them as well. But just wanted to call in and let that be heard. Have a good one. Great work on the show. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So just a real quick response to the last voicemailer on GMOs uh, before I pivot away from that conversation is is that when a person makes an argument in favor of GMOs, usually the first thing they're going to say is uh, something about increased food production. And, uh, you know, so either we can feed more people or food is cheaper or both. And uh, and that's usually the direction that conversation goes. Uh, so, so I want to pivot away from GMOs, but continue talking about food. And I want to read an excerpt for you guys uh, from a, a book I read several years ago, but this conversation has me thinking about it. The book is uh, – it's a novel. It's called Ishmael. An Adventure of the Mind and Spirit. And it's a novel with a purpose. You know, it's essentially the entire book is a conversation between two people, Ishmael, the teacher, and his student, the narrator of the book. Really, all you need to know before I read this is that um, in the book, they refer to the, the sort of paradigm of human thought as mother culture. As, as if it was an entity that can influence our lives. It's, I mean, it's a, it's an idea that influences our lives, but they, they refer to mother culture and how she, uh, tells us what to do and how to act because of sort of the paradigm of thinking that the vast, vast majority of humans in the world have grown up sort of understanding. And, and the other is that they, they refer to the gods and it's not so much that the the characters in the book necessarily you know believe in gods interacting w- with the world but it's that it's sort of taken as granted that humans in general perceive gods to be either in control or to have created the world and anything that happens naturally in the world is sort of the will of the gods or the act of the gods and and so that's that's referenced but it's not to be taken literally in this context so, continuing the conversation about food with something that I think is going to make some people's uh, minds explode a little bit. Uh, this is from Ishmael talking about famine. So, Ishmael, the teacher, begins, Famine isn't unique to humans. All species are subject to it everywhere in the world. When the population of any species outstrips its food resources, that population declines until it's once again in balance with its resources. Mother culture says that humans should be exempt from that process. So when she finds a population that has outstripped its resources, she rushes in food from the outside, thus making it a certainty that there will be even more of them to starve in the next generation. Because the population is never allowed to decline to the point at which it can be supported by its own resources, famine becomes a chronic feature of their lives. Yes, a few years ago I read a story in the paper about an ecologist who made that same point at some conference on hunger. Boy, did he get jumped on. He was practically accused of being a murderer. Yes, I can imagine. His colleagues all over the world understand perfectly well what he is saying, but they have the good sense not to confront mother culture with it in the midst of her benevolence. If there are 40,000 people in an area that can only support 30,000, it is no kindness to bring in food from the outside to maintain them at 40,000. That just guarantees that the famine will continue. True, but all the same, it's hard to just sit by and let them starve. This is precisely how someone speaks who imagines that he is the world's divinely appointed ruler. I will not let them starve. I will not let the drought come. I will not let the river flood. It is the gods who let these things, not you. A valid point, I said. Even so, I have one more question on this. Ishmael nodded me on. 
We increase food production in the U.S. tremendously every year, but our population growth is relatively slight. On the other hand, population growth is steepest in countries with poor agricultural production. This seems to contradict your correlation of food production with population growth. He shook his head in mild disgust. The phenomenon, as it's observed, is this. Every increase in food production to feed an increased population is answered by another increase in population. This says nothing about where these increases occur. I don't get it. An increase in food production in Nebraska doesn't necessarily produce a population increase in Nebraska. It may produce a population increase somewhere in India or Africa. I still don't get it. Every increase in food production is answered by an increase in population somewhere. In other words, someone is consuming Nebraska's surpluses. And if they weren't, Nebraska's farmers would stop producing those surpluses. Pronto. True, I said, and spent a few moments in thought. Are you suggesting that the first world farmers are fueling the third world population explosion? Ultimately, he said, who else is there to fuel it? I sat there staring at him. You need to take a step back from the problem in order to see it in a global perspective. At present, there are five and a half billion of you here, and though millions of you are starving, you're producing enough food to feed six billion. And because you're producing enough food for six billion, it's a biological certainty that in three or four years, there will be six billion of you. By that time, however, even though millions of you will be starving, you'll be producing enough food for six and a half billion which means that in another three or four years, there will be six and a half billion. But by that time, you'll be producing enough food for seven billion, even though millions of you will be starving, which again means that in another three or four years, there will be seven billion of you. In order to halt this process, you must face the fact that increasing food production doesn't feed your hungry. It only fuels your population explosion. I see that, but how do we stop increasing food production? You do it the same way you stop destroying the ozone layer, the same way you stop cutting down the rainforest. If the will is there, the method will be found. So, there we go. Uh, chew on that for a minute. <laughs> Discuss amongst yourselves. Or call in the number again, 206-202-3410. I would be uh, very interested to hear what, what anyone has to say about that. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening and especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time donation to the show. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com black and white took apart a picture that wasn't right burning on a shining sheet the only maker that you want to be dying man in a living room whose shadow bases the floor